Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets, songwriters, and artists, including Olivia Gatwood, Safia El Hilo, Dana Joya, and many more. We also feature periodic submitted poetry episodes. Visit viewlesswings.com to submit your original poetry. I'm your host, James Moorhead, Poet Laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas, Portraits of Red and Gray, and The Plague Doctor. Hit subscribe and follow me on Instagram or threads at Viewless Wings. Gabriel Dozal is from El Paso, Texas. He received his MFA in poetry from the University of Arizona. His work appears in Poetry Magazine, Guernica, Bomb Magazine, the Iowa Review, the Brooklyn Rail, the Literary Review, Hunger Mountain, the Volta, Contraviento, and more. Gabrielle, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, super excited to have you here. Uh, the title of your book and the opening lines of the first poem, Border Verses, signals that this will be different from a typical collection of individual poem. Your book opens... The border simulator, like the real border, was made up of narratives that passed inspection, ports of entry, poems that have artificial rivers, have brother and sister stream down holographic mountains in an attempt to reach the lower valley's work floor. How did you construct the unique conceit for this book, which is so different from a typical collection of poems? It sort of worked in reverse, uh, James. The it, it, in a weird way, it, it kind of worked out this way that it's kind of chronological, where the first section is the newest section. So like mm. reverse chronological, right? So the, And then the last section were kind of like the first poems I wrote in this border simulator uh, kind of like journey. I kind of wrote up to that point, you know, like border verses, the first poem was one of the last poems I wrote for the collection because I was trying to make give the reader an entrance into the world and an entrance into these characters the best way I could, right? I mean, it's not a fiction book with characters that are fully developed and fully formed, right? It's not a, um, it's not a deep character dive, right? They're, they're kind of like these broad characters and figures. But I wanted the, that conceit for the book because I guess it's my love of, of short fiction also, um, sort of like Amy Hempel, uh, Yannick Murphy, they kind of come from this uh, short story, American short story school, um, like the Gordon Lish kind of short story school. I love the speed in which that moves. There's something that feels like poetry to me through from that kind of Gordon Lish school. And I love the conceit of having a character and a narrative for the reader to have something to hold on to as they go through the book. I wanted to give the reader as many footholds as possible into the into the world well i would have had no idea that that was that you basically wrote it reverse <laughs> chronological I, I i i um uh sandra longhorn i uh read her book which is uh started the exact opposite way it was uh, she's mm. on the podcast recently where the this narrative was written in the flow of the story with these rich characters. So that was very well done because I would have never have guessed that in a million years. It fits together. It feels like you wrote it in that order. Neat, um, neat. Well, going back to characters, so the border simulator is built around multiple characters, 
brother and sister, Primitivo and Primitiva, the border and the simulator as distinct things, the fence, customs, crossers, and more. I mean, there's a real collage of, of characters. In Through a Designated Lens, a Death Filter is an Effect, you write, Customs has the ability to appear in dreams and attack the dreamer. A sorting algorithm of morality. No, mortality. What was your approach to constructing these characters, even if loosely so, to finding and crafting their unique voices? And they definitely all have unique voices. I think voice was something that was really important to me. And I think that's something I borrow from uh, Elfrida Jelinek. Uh, she's Austrian playwright and novelist. Um, Elfrida Jelinek has a huge influence on me. And, and all of her plays, all of her novels are very voicey. They, it's all, it's like a, 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 a collage of voices, so, sort of like you say. Um, and so I wanted each character to have this specific colloquial voice, this kind of like off the cuff, but still lyrical uh, uh, voiciness to it. Um, and I also, I think, you know, I, I want... I wanted readers who not just love poetry, but also readers who might not necessarily read poetry all the time to have access to it. And I think the voice is one way, one trick I have to make it uh, hit with readers who don't usually read poetry, right? I kept thinking, I want my Tio Alberto to be able to read this book and to be able to enjoy it, right? My Tio Alberto, he didn't graduate high school. He was a groundskeeper his whole life, but I want him to be able to pick up this book and connect with it. Um, and I think the voiciness is one way is one way I can try to achieve that. And I think that you were very effective in having so many characters, which is in a way almost breaking a rule of poetry is, mm. I think uh, Billy Collins has said famously mm. in his very direct way that is, as soon as, a, as soon as a poem has more than one or two people involved, he stops reading it. And because uh, <laughs> he's funny. super opinionated. Yeah, he said that at an event in San Francisco. Um, of course, this is an entire book for the characters to be introduced, and I think that there you don't overweight any given poem. Did you think about that in terms of the, the the collage of characters across the arc of the book and the individual poems, and to what extent you you're careful not to overload an individual poem with too many characters? Was that a conscious thing, or did it just work out that way? Well, I think it worked out that way because the book also works in like repetition and recycling and remixing, right? phrases pop up back and forth, right? So I think there is more characters than usually found in a book of poetry, but the language play, I think, helps the reader stick with what is happening, where they're not confused or they're not unsure of, of, of where they are exactly, or maybe they are unsure, but um, but I think I've set up, I, I, I set up very similar platforms for each situation and each character that kind of get repeated and remixed Cool. Well, we're going to introduce in a little bit uh, your translator that worked on the, on the book, and uh, which is a fascinating album of this book, uh, but we'll hold off a little bit to introduce her. But many books are translated into multiple languages, just one of the things publishers do. Uh, but in the, uh, the Border Simulator, the Spanish translation is right next to the English original, as though the spine of the book is acting as a border between the two languages. And I just want you to, was that always the plan or was that 
something that occurred to you as this book became, you know, something that's going to get published? Because I, mean, I do view that the fascination visuals as I was writing these questions. I thought, yeah, it's like there's yeah. there's the border of the book between the two languages and the two perspectives. Yeah, so I really have to give it up to my editor, Nicole Counts at One World. I, I did not imagine this book, you know, when I graduated from my MFA here at the University of Arizona, that's where I'm at right now. I didn't imagine it as a bilingual book. Hmm. It was really Nicole Counts who came with that idea. And I sat on that idea for a couple of weeks and really thought about it because it wasn't how I imagined the book coming out. Um, but I also never imagined my book would get published on One World Random House. I never, <laughs> like, that is like, um, like wildest dream come true. Like, like you know, I was hoping like a tiny cool press would pick it up, right? And I, and I was sending it out for years and, and One World was kind of like the only ones who, were, who, who picked it up or who, uh, who decided on it. So I think part of what I was thinking was why, why, why I agreed to it was kind of like, why not? Why not make this, why not try to add as much depth as possible to the book? That was kind of a philosophy in the poems themselves, right? I'm always looking to add another layer of depth, another, like I said earlier, foothold for the reader, something else that they can, you know, uh, consider, whether that's wordplay um, whether that's this kind of like remixing. So I was like, you know what, Let, let's do that. And then it wasn't always set that it would be uh, on FOSS or open face like that, where English on one side and Spanish on the other. It wasn't that either. We went back and forth for a while as to whether it would be like a split book. Mm -hmm. But like you mentioned, James, what an amazing metaphor. What, a, what an amazing visual element. So I, I really fought for the the open face translation English on one side Spanish on the other so that you can have you can, your eyes could go back and forth whether you speak Spanish or not or whether you speak English or not maybe you, maybe you're reading it just as a Spanish speaker you can go back and forth and you can see the changes the the way it gets morphed and shift shifted into the Spanish I mean Natasha has done a miraculous job creating parallels in the Spanish. There's a lot of puns. There's a lot of language play. There's a lot of, there's a lot of jokes. There's references that Natasha has made parallels to in the Spanish. If you are uh, an English and a Spanish reader, you get to see both of these worlds. And that in itself is like a border simulator, you know, because growing up in El Paso, being on that border... I'm in touch with both of those worlds, right? You have your foot in both kind of a Latino culture and an, and an American, a, you know, United States culture and you, and you code switch between those languages. So um, yeah, it's, it's a, I'm so proud of how the book has come out. And I think you touched on it, James, like just having that spine being that border that separates creates so much fun, fun ways for the reader to interact with the book. Oh, yeah, it's so different. It's unique. And it's always good to have with so many books that are released every year to have something that makes it unique. So it's a brilliant uh, decision. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so going back to the border, it's contradictions, the anti-immigration politics that have been rife for years, and U.S. dependence on undocumented undocum workers. Mm -hmm. All of these things are reflected in this book. 
You've managed to capture these themes through the eyes of Primitivo and Primitiva while doing so with wit and winks to the reader. In the short poem, you love emblems and flags, don't you, Primitiva, you write. The flag of the border is its fence. It's the longest flag you've ever seen rippling across the border. Where do all your fences live? All my fences live in Texas. How did the voice and tone of this book emerge through the editing and revision process, particularly as books of poetry are typically written over years? Uh, You don't necessarily have any idea that they're going to be a collection until later on down the line. And in your case, you know, the the critical first poem of the book was written at the end or near the end. So (laughs) um, so uh, how did that how did the the tone and voice emerge? And then how did you have to go back and sort of uh, revisit poems once you had a clearer image of the book that they'd be a part of if you ended up having to go back and revise them? Yeah. Yeah, So, I mean, uh, this is where, um, you know. I mean, as you know, James, any book of poetry or prose is there's a there's a whole world of people behind the book. You know, it's um, so here at the University of Arizona's MFA program, I wrote in a practice poem the phrase border simulator Hmm. and kind of one of my mentors here, Andrew Monson, who's a great nonfiction writer. He saw that and he circled that phrase and he was like, this is a really cool idea follow this, like follow that trail. So from there, I started creating sort of like an algorithm of ways to write border simulator poems. At first, there were no characters and everything was in the second person or it was addressed to you. And that's why the last section is the only you left in the border simulator. Those were the first sort of border simulator poems I wrote. And then I I, I thought about adding the characters and adding the world. And I stayed in that mode throughout my MFA. So starting in about 2016, 2017 is when I started writing border simulator poems. And I just stayed in this mode where I wanted there to be those winks to the reader that you're saying, right? These pop culture references, like, you know, all my exes live in Texas, but no, it's all my my fences live in Texas. I wanted there to be lots of language play. I wanted there to be lots of playfulness and voiciness because also that reflects the border I know. Um, you know, if you just know about El Paso or the or the or border cities through the news, you only hear about kind of like the negative things. You only hear about like the 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 terrible difficulties of of migrants trying to cross the border or in 2008, you knew about, you know, how Juarez was the murder capital capital of the world. But I wanted the the playfulness, the vividness, the life, the the jokes, the puns, the wordplay that happens on the border, to show like both of these worlds, um, um, sort of together. So yeah, like that that voiciness, I think, is part of that, a part of that goal. Well, the border simulator also has a, a surreal quality, a border that both is and isn't a place. In There Are Plenty of Places Where the Border Doesn't Exist, you write, Primitiva was only interested in creepy pasta stories about the border. But what is so creepy about the border simulator? It was creepy because of how quickly the definitions took refuge in the crossers. What was your thought process about when to be concrete and when to be surreal when crafting this narrative? Because I think if it was as surreal as it is at points the entire book, the reader would probably be thoroughly confused. 
And if it was concrete the whole time, it would be too much documentary and not enough poetry. And getting that balance right is super tricky, which I think you've done effectively here. So talk about that, getting that balance between surreal and concrete. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, James, for your close reading um, and for like just engaging with the book. It's I mean, this is like our first podcast together, me and Natasha. So this is it's so great to hear you engage with with the book in, in such a smart way. Um, you know, part of the that balance, you know, on the surface, absolutely, this book is about the U.S.-Mexico border. But one of the other kind of like Easter egg hidden themes is how we live our lives through screens. You know, I, I was, I'm 39 years old. I was born in 1984. I remember the world before cell phones. I remember the world before, uh, uh, you know, we had so many of our formative experiences through screens. So that is for me, part of the simulation part of the book, the difference between the world that exists on our phones <laughs> on our phones and and the world that exists that we know in, in real life. I mean, sometimes they match up. Sometimes they're the same. But sometimes you see things online. It's like, wait a minute, that doesn't match up with my experience. That doesn't match up with, with the world I know. So I think that's where I gave the book freedom to become surreal or have these mm -hmm. moments that are outside of like something that's believable. And then it zips back into a very important or intense story about about immigration or, or, or crossing. No, I think that that balance is really effective um, because again, Thank there's you. a risk that it would just become a documentary and that's a different important thing. Uh, and it, 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 the art was retained throughout. So you employ a variety of forms in the border simulator, border simulator, free verse, concrete poetry, long prose poems, lists, and more. How do you think about form as a tool when crafting your poetry? And when does that come into play? And I'll give you, you know, in my case, I, I write, I capture images and then it's raw material. And then I figure out what the heck I'm going to do with them. Uh, with mm -hmm. A. Stallings, who I spoke to uh, last year, uh, she's the opposite way. She views form as a wonder. It takes her, she views deciding the form up front is taking a decision off the table. And, wow. and then she fills it in. So totally the opposite. Um, uh, so how, how do you approach form? Does it emerge out of the poem or is it something that is a choice up front or something in between? Uh, very cool to hear that you interviewed A.E. Stallings. I oh, need she's to go back incredible. And listen, listen. Oh, my goodness. Oh. She's yes, that was a thrill. Yeah, I, I, I admire I admire her very, very much. Um, just uh, yeah. So interesting to hear how she thinks of, then about form. You know, each form for the poem is sort of like an organic process for the poem. Right. Like, um, and it's, and it's a little bit, you know, kind of like happy accident. Um, I, I have notes and notes of, of Google document pages where I'm, I'm riffing off of ideas. I'm taking language that I've already heard. I'm remixing language that I've found. And that all's all splayed on the page, mostly in kind of like a prose format. And then I slowly start to, it's like, uh, maybe like sculpture, just like chiseling away mm -hmm. at the language until it gets to a form that very subjectively looks good and feels right to me. Uh, so that movement on the page is something that is, is very much organic. And I have several ways that I like a poem to look on the page. Um, but then like the, uh, that, that very playful poem in, in form wise, the, um, the Hydra poem where the, 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 it almost looks like a map 
like the letters yes. are, are, are all over the place. I mean, that was one where, yes, uh, that wasn't very organic. I, I tried, <laughs> what I was trying to do, and maybe unsuccessfully, was with each word, make the outline of Texas from El Paso down to like the south of Texas, right? So, so it, it sort of looks like the, um, uh, the border of, of Texas and, and, and Mexico there. But yeah, it's, it's really a, an, an organic form where sometimes I want it to look very neat and clean. Sometimes it, I want it to be spread out. Hopefully that also adds some kind of depth for the reader and maybe at times looks sort of like something like a map or something like they're looking at a topographical type of thing. Yeah, visually, I mean, this is, a, I mean, visually with the, I mean, the translation and at the opposite side, the way the, the, the way that you displace white space, it's a very visual book. Um, I think it'll work great as an audio book too, but it's a very visual book. So people have to own both. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so many people I suspect aren't aware of how much research goes into the creation of poems. This is something I've talked about with multiple poets on this podcast. Accepting poems crafted purely from lived experiences, what are your research tools and how do you think about incorporating research to enrich uh, the, the border simulator in this case? Yeah, I mean, I think it is like contemporary news events are a big part of my research, following all the kinds of news about the border and from different outlets too from conservative outlets to, you know, like uh, uh, more like lefty MSNBC type or Democracy Now! type outlets. I try to gather all of those types of narratives and stories. And it's something that I listen to anyway. So it's definitely not, my process definitely is not like going to the archive, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's, that's definitely not quite my process. And that's okay. And I think the book makes this kind of argument that it's okay, I don't, or not everyone has to be like the absolute definitive voice about the border to be able to write about it. I mean, I'm born from there, it's in my blood. Um, so there's a lot of like these news and media outlets, also more kind of, um, how, how do I put this? Like, you know, there's an Instagram page from El Paso called FitFam. It is not a serious media outlet. It is memes. It is um, it is funny things that are happening at the border. It is scary, serious things that are happening at the border. But in this sort of very surface level social media sort of way, right? And I'm fascinated by that. I'm fascinated by all of these different narratives that we get through media about the border. Um, so that's sort of like my process. It's kind of like mining contemporary news tidbits about the border. And oftentimes I'll use some of that language in the poems and riff off of that in order to kind of show the ridiculousness of the stories or to show the uh, inconsistencies in the stories or to highlight things that I know to also be true. So I'm constantly like weaving in and out of these media stories. Yeah, media uh, contemporary news stories are a terrific raw material for found poetry, absolutely. I, I had a chance to interview a member of the band Love and Rockets recently, and Daniel Ash, and he exclusively uses a found poetry technique by a cut-up method to take headlines from more sensationalist type of outlets and use that as raw material. It's very cool. So a couple more questions before I hand it over to you and Natasha to read selections from the book. Uh, the titles of many of the poems are mini poems in themselves, a couple of examples. Customs are waiting for me with their lassos and zip ties. And 
Dear Crosser, did you know that you're not your body? These are two terrific examples of your wonderful titles. How do you approach crafting compelling titles from your poems? Something that can be a real struggle for a lot of poets is getting the title right. Yeah, you know, I, I had a process where uh, it's a very simple process. It, it's not it's not that it's not that uh, not that revealing or amazing. But oftentimes, the first line I would write a poem. It didn't have a title, and then that first line would just become the title, mm-hmm. right? So. So in that way, they do feel almost like poems in themselves or lines of poems by themselves. I got a kick looking at the first time I saw the table of contents in the in the arc or in the uh, in the preview of the book, and just tr- reading that almost as a poem. Yes. Reading, reading the introduction. Now that would be wonderful having the table of contents be so carefully constructed with the have the <laughs> titles of the poems that itself is a poem. That's where, I mean, as poets, we're almost masochistic in our approaching language challenges. That's that's an interesting one. I'll just put that in the back of my mind. A book where the table of contents truly works as a standalone poem. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's an amazing idea. Absolutely. Uh, So there are moments when the serenity gives away to anger from you can't un-Latino me, you write, the border is a tactic and a symptom. It accuses you of committing the crime it's committing. You of landing what it's lording. There's a border, and then there's a hidden border, one I can only access through murmurs. There have been many, many poems written about migrants, immigration, countries, how countries police their borders that are visceral, that are howls. Um, you have, a, you have for the most part, as I mentioned earlier, woven that anger into the poetry without being explicit. Uh, how do you balance... How do you approach the balance of crafting poetry that works as poetry and communicating the challenges that are at the issue of this poetry without losing the poetry in the process? And I've talked about that with multiple poets that I've had in the podcast. Safia Hillo is one good example of that, where you know they t- uh, write about some very serious issues, but don't overwhelm the poetry with the issues and lose the power of it in the process. Yeah, that's that's a, such a good question, James, and um. Um, you know, the, that, I think you, that poem, I'm really happy that you picked out, um, because that is, I think I was talking to my wife about this earlier in the week. Like, I feel like I'm not, I'm very, I'm not an autobiographical poet. Like I'm not writing about very personal things in my life, but that title is probably the most personal title or the Mm -hmm. most personal poem in the book. Because uh, it's something that I felt, and yeah, it, it is. It almost does touch on like this kind of like feeling of anger, um, because I think being from the border, you struggle with your identity in terms of how Mexican you are, or how Mex or how Latino you aren't, and then how American you are, or how American you are not, right? Um, so that's kind of like my defiant. You can't un-Latino me, no matter how you how how hard you try. You can't. You can't. No one can take that away from me. Um, but, you know, sort of going back to what I was saying earlier in in one of your previous questions, I, um, I, I want in every poem, even in, even in one where where there's this kind of like frustration or anger to be playful in one Mm -hmm. way or another. And also it creates this very interesting tone. Um, a, a big influence is also Daniel Borzutsky. Uh, the uh, uh, poet from Chicago, because I think he hits this note also that I'm also trying to get at, 
It's, it's dark humor. It's intense situations with playfulness mixed in. Um, and I think that's, that's one way where I can let the poetry shine, right? I can let, I can let the poetic elements sort of, sort of shine. And again, I mean, uh, Elfrida Jelinek does this so well. She writes about Austrian history and Austria's Nazi past on a very, like the darkest subject, but she does it in this amazing, lyrical, mm. playful way that is uh, just some, something I, I, I've never quite seen before. Um, and I love that, that, in, that intensity or that clashing of those two worlds where there's that friction. I think, it's, I think that's like very, it's very exciting for me. And I think it, it, it lets those, those more serious elements sneak up on you when mm-hmm. uh, they're not being, you know, bashing you over the head. Although there's certainly very effective poems that take a totally different Howley approach and, and it works. But uh, I thought that was very effective. So I've interviewed several poets who have crafted books built on rich characters and a narrative foundation and wondered what it would be like to see those books recrafted or performed in their original form as, uh, as a play or on the stage. Have you thought about how the border simulator could potentially be staged? Cause it screams out to be performed. Oh man, that, that I'm so happy you say that James, cause I would love for that to happen. And again, I can take notes uh, from, I mean, I, I think, I should have to put like money in a swear jar every time I mention Elfrida Yelenik or something. So I'm going to bring her <laughs> up again because, but she, but she also influenced influenced mine and Natasha's translation process. And and here's one way I imagine it. And going off of Elfrida Yelenik again, she writes these dense texts that are called plays. They're they're they're, they're technically that, but there's no set characters. There's no there's no. It's just paragraphs. There's not even line breaks. She gives complete freedom to her playwrights, to the dramaturgist, to her translators to run with the language and, and morph it and shape it into characters if, if um, how they see fit. So I imagine it would be something similar in that way, right? I, I, I wouldn't imagine if it were a, a play that it would follow a similar type of arc from start to finish. I would encourage the dramaturgist or the playwright to cut up all the voices and 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 create uh, maybe even a new narrative based off of them, um, yeah, that's how I can see it. And I'm again, I'm glad you say that it screams to be to be performed. I often thought about it as sort of like monologues, right? Characters mm-hmm. kind of like like voicing things. Uh, maybe it lacks uh, a type of narrative arc for a play. I'm not sure. That's not my that's not my forte, <laughs> but I'd be very fascinated and interested in it becoming a play. I'm now going to welcome Natasha Tinyakos to join Gabriel. Natasha is a Venezuelan poet, literary translator, and a scholar living and working in the United States after being granted political asylum. She holds an MFA in creative writing in Spanish from New York University and is currently pursuing a PhD at the CUNY Graduate Center, investigating Latinx and Latin American literature, sound, and art. She has published two books of poems in Spanish, Muera Fuego Lento, 2006, and Historia Privada de un etc., 2011. And now I'm going to pass the mic over to Gabrielle and Natasha to read selections from The Border Simulator in both English and Spanish. Okay, this is Night 2, Primitivo Exits the Crypt. 
suck the Texas out of my mouth and then pass Texas into the mouth of the person behind you in line. They look like they're also thirsty for Texas. Crossers get the seconds. Us customs, the princes of catch and release, get the minutes. You can't take back what you declared, and you also can't take back the crossing, because then you're right back where you started, from customs mouth to the crosser's ear. Language is expensive. Silence is expensive. The caravan of coffins has arrived. There is no way for customs to open every coffin, but they did open the one primitivo, the undead crosser, was hiding in. He went into the casket alive, crossed the border, and came out something like alive. Primitivo shows his work. He points to his crossing. This is my work. This lets customs know he's alive. A simple equation that only a real crosser could solve. His dollar signs are also locked away. These crypto exchange rates refuse to stay in the crypt. If you listen closely, you can hear exchange rates rattling on the entrance to the crypt. We're here to exchange one crosser for another. Open Primitivo's coffin. This is where his tales of crypto also reside, and they're the richest narratives, the ones that have come back to life. How do you say anything in Spanish? Add an O. Noche dos, primitivo sale de la cripta. Chupa el Texas fuera de mi boca y luego pasa Texas a la boca de la persona detrás de ti en la fila. Se les nota que están sedientos de Texas. A los cruzantes les tocan los segundos. Nosotros, aduanas, los príncipes del catch and release, nos quedamos los minutos. No puedes retractar lo que declaraste y tampoco puedes regular la cruzada porque entonces regresas directo a donde comenzaste, de la boca de aduanas. Al oído del cruzante, el lenguaje es caro, el silencio es caro. La caravana de urnas ha llegado. No hay manera de que aduanas alcance a abrir todas las urnas, pero sí abrieron esa en la que en primitivo el cruzante de muerto viviente se escondía. Se metió al féretro vivo, cruzó, la frontera, y salió algo como vivo, primitivo, muestra su obra, señala el cruce, esta es mi obra, esto permite que aduana sepa que está vivo, una ecuación simple que solo un cruzante verdadero podría resolver, sus signos de dólar también están encerrados, estos tipos de cambio de cripto se rehusan a quedarse en la cripta, si escuchas con atención, Puedes oír el triqui-traque de los tipos de cambio en la entrada de la cripta. Aquí estamos para canjear un cruzante por otros. Abre la urna de Primitivo. Aquí es también donde sus cuentos de la cripta residen. Y son las más ricas narrativas las que han tenido que volver a la vida. ¿Cómo es que dices algo en español? Le añades una O. Customs are waiting for me with their lassos and zip ties. I'm a pile of judgment days crossing the border. 
I tried to organize the hours, waiting in line on the bridge, but days travel over days and erase them. I organize my tears instead. I keep some in my coat pocket. Customs finds my years or tears, whichever. And my story tears up the costume agent. Customs agent, ay, perdón, till she's blind in one eye. She tells me she might be able to open simulation. Before customs lets me in, they need to paint my portrait. It's a slow process as they Niagara Falls through their post at the kiosk, revealing their daubs to themselves for customs like me are made from hidden daubs of paint. The fence's eyes are located in its weaves and I can feel its gaze. Yes, the fence looks at me just as I look at the fence. When you look at each other long enough, you start to influence each other's behavior. And the fence has seen me work for years at the border. The fence has seen me building it, the fence. My shadow is over there in El Paso, but I'm right here. Why didn't customs check its ID? What's so special about my shadow? It's not even me. Costumes me espera con sus lazos y sus cinchos plásticos. Soy un montón de días del juicio cruzando la frontera. Intenté organizar las horas de espera en la cola del puente, pero los días viajan con los días y los borran. En vez de eso, organizo mis lágrimas, dejo algunas en el bolsillo de mi abrigo. Aduanas encuentra mis años o mis lágrimas, lo que sea. Y mi historia conmueve hasta las lágrimas a la gente humana, a gente de aduana, y perdón, hasta que queda ciega de un ojo. Me dice que quizás pueda abrir la simulación. Antes de que aduanas me deje entrar, necesitan pintar mi retrato. Es un proceso lento a lo que dan el salto ángel a sus puestos en el kiosco, revelando sus manchones entre sí, pues aduanas como yo, está hecha de secretas unturas de pintura. Los ojos de la valla se hallan en su tejido de alambre y puedo sentir su mirada, sí. La, mi, la valla me mira tal como a la valla miro. Cuando miras suficientemente al otro por un tiempo, uno empieza a influir en el comportamiento del otro y viceversa. Y la valla me ha visto batallar. En la frontera, la valla me ha visto construirla a la valla. Mi sombra está allá en el paso, pero yo estoy justo aquí. ¿Por qué aduana no revisó mi identificación? ¿Qué es lo que mi sombra tiene de especial? Ni siquiera soy yo. Wonderful. That's, it, it's just the musicality from both of you. And even though I am a native English-only speaker with a little bit of Italian through my, through my in-laws and a little bit of French by living in Canada for a while, I, it's just wonderful hearing the English and the Spanish back-to-back -back like that. I, it's just you, you you're almost, you're, as a listener, I'm trying to decode 
the Spanish having just heard the English. So that was that was wonderful. So Natasha, I've had several of my poems translated into Italian because of the themes of the poems and my Italian in-laws would gave them a chance to understand them since the English is not their native language. And uh, finding a translator who specializes in poetry was tricky because the poetry needs to be retained when translating the words. And it's not just as simple as uh, translating the words. There's, there's, you know, almost reimagining the words a little bit to work in that language. Um, how do you approach the tricky challenge of translating the poetry and working with the poet, Gabrielle, in this case, in, in doing so? Yeah, our, our, our work together, I, I, I think I'm going to copy Gabriel. It's, it has been a collaboration since the beginning. My, my colleagues and professors uh, have been asking, how is this process going? Uh, the process going is well. And, and they say, well, is the author alive? Yes, yes, the author is alive. <laughs> so, of course, that gives me a lot to win because I, I we discussed so many things and we... He gave, um, he granted permission, I should say, to certain um, conspiracies that will make the poem natural in Spanish. No, uh, sometimes I think it's a mix of things. I want to honor the meaning, and I know it's a very sonic book, and I was very emphatic about honoring the sound of Gabriel's poems, and and. You know, I, we, we were discussing so much about the impossible translation. The book is also a reflection of the contra translation with so many times that we use the word costumes in Spanish. We, it's, a, it's a place of this, I mean, let's leave it like that because he has the, the, the word in English has this weight in Spanish that is a different weight if you you know if you are speaking in the in the language of departure, but many things were discussed with him. I was very emphatic to make the poem beautiful in Spanish as well, a cynical, black, dark. I am a refugee myself, and sometimes it was a hard task. But uh, I think humor um, and on what Gabriel writes uh, is a very complex. Uh, perspective on the issue. I'm right now, I'm talking to you from the archive of Gloria Saldua in Texas because I'm doing research here. And she used to say that the border was a boon. No, in, in the case of this, this book is right in the middle. The boon is right there. Mm -hmm. But I mean, we, we go in life and we're happy with a boon. We, the boon will heal or will not, but it's, it, it, we coexist with it. And we, are, we also make jokes with it and we, we make um, beauty out of it. And so it was a mix. I think I answer you with other observations, but... It's a, it's a balance and it's a complex decision-making task, yes. Well, as we discussed earlier, uh, Gabriel and Natasha, given the prominence of the translations that are on an equal footing with the original poems, not a separate book or, um, you know, in all English in the front and then, and then the translations at the back, uh, how did the effort to translate the poems potentially influence the English poems and maybe change them a little bit from what you learned through the questions being asked uh, by your translator? Yeah, um, so there was a, a specific time where the Spanish changed the English. 
as we're working through the translation, mm-hmm. right? Or or uh, Natasha would fix my Spanish because there is Spanish in the English, right? There's a kind of a Spanglish or Spanish words. And I, I can think of one specific example where Natasha corrected the Spanish in the, in the English, but also there was instances where this, you know, no one knows this book better than Natasha. Natasha might know this book better than me. She might because because there is like this microscopic look at every single phrase. Natasha helped me catch some things that didn't quite make sense. I'm like, oh yeah, you're right. The, there's two types of deodorant. There's a roll-on and then there's a stick. There's not a roll-on stick because I had this phrase, this roll-on stick deodorant. But Natasha was like, wait, no, there's either roll-on or there's a stick. There's not both. And I'm like, you're right. You're right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> also, also here, uh, like kind of a sidetrack thing, but we got to put into the Spanish. I, I like that, Natasha, I think you used the word conspiracy. And I like this very much because we snuck things into the Spanish, almost as if we're sneaking words, if we're sneaking language. Um, for instance, you whom they border. If you look at the title of you whom they border in Spanish, that's a very creative title. And that's because I was going for this sound, this yoo-hoo, yoo-hoo, they border, right? And so Natasha was able to capture this. There was phrases that I didn't know existed. I was describing this phrase called shadow ban or shadow banning. Mm-hmm. When, I, when I wrote the poem, I actually didn't have the word for it, shadow ban. I just kind of had the concept of it and I wrote about it in one of the poems in the book. But the word shadow ban appears in the Spanish. So it's like an updated version. It's like a, it's like a timeline as well. Uh, so it's like it works through in so many dimensions. Hearing you read, Natasha, is just just makes me so proud, Natasha. I, I think your 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 reading makes this book better. It makes it amazing. I'm I'm honored to work with you. And I'm honored that, that you and your editors gave the opportunity of your book to be in another world. No, the the borders, those are very fine now between languages. No, so many I can think of so many reading readers in this book that will be delighted that speak only Spanish as well, and I teach Spanish in literature levels in the U.S. And I bet your book will also be a delight uh, for their study. No, and and their and their pleasure. So thank you for the opportunity. It's always, uh, I'm in awe, which is a verb I love from English because of the sound. <laughs> I'm at all in awe, okay? <laughs> but because of this responsibility granted to me. And, it, and yeah, I became a very close reader. I think the translator is the closest reader of a book, mm-hmm. considering that I'm not reading in my native, native tone. So I become a researcher. I even, I, I share with Gabriel this, uh, James, that one of my ways to translate, I had many screens, um, and one of the screens had a live webcam of the border. So I could hear even the birds. Mm. I could see the sunset as it was happening. No, and, and it has been, for me, that technique was extraordinary. My senses were there in El Paso, in other cities with webcams in the border. 
So just a couple more questions. So what advice do you have from both of your perspectives for authors working with a translator or a translator working with an author to make that partnership as effective as possible? And this is a pretty unique example of that um, relative to what many translations are like. But what, what did you learn about making that an effective partnership from both of your perspectives? And Natasha, do you want to go first? See, I I would like to call Holderlin because Holderlin in a letter says, "Come to the openness, my friend," and 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 is cryptic, I think. But that invitation, "Come to the openness, my friend," um, as I said, I'm honored to have this responsibility granted to me. So I was given my generosity to hear what he thinks. I was open to suggestions. And I think Gabriel was open as well. And even uh, uh, all these pep talks before our Zoom sessions and, and, and the conversations we had were so rich. I think we were lucky, no? I don't know if mm -hmm. this is the norm. What would you say, Gabriel? Yeah, I think, you know, we, we, we got to hand it to Kelsey Venata, who is a mutual friend who put us together because um, it really was a, a perfect match for for this translation. So I don't know. Um, I think I think it's a really individual your question to your question, James, I, I think it's a very individual. It has to be an individual experience between the poet and the translator because uh, I, I wanted I did not want to have complete micro control of the translation. Because also because of the nature of my book, that would have been so, mm -hmm. oh, as it was, it was a very difficult, long process. It was an exhilarating process, but it was, we worked incredibly hard on this translation and Natasha worked incredibly hard. And because of the play, the language play, the puns, the specificness, I had to be open to all kinds of ideas and changes. Um, and we had to be open to allowing the Spanish to go off on its own sometimes which is kind of neat. It's kind of neat. The Spanish, mm. like at, at times, has its own mind, has its own winks, has its own uh, its own kind of conspiracies, as, as as Natasha said. But the openness, like Natasha is saying, you have to be willing. You have to let go. You have to let go of the of the of the English version, um, and and let the translator run with it. But I think we had that philosophy from the start that we would be uh, uh, open to. Uh, to any kind of changes and and a playfulness that exists in the English already, right? So there there is a playfulness in the Spanish and in the translation as well, and it's I think it's perfect. I think we've done uh, uh, an amazing job, and I'm very proud of it. Yeah, I think that I think about a good translation needs to be a painting, not a photograph. Um, you know, Google Translate is more of an attempt to be a, a photograph. Uh, mm -hmm. and just literally translate with some context, whereas with poetry particularly, it needs to be a painting. So I think that uh, I don't speak Spanish, so I have to, I'm, uh, so I, I have to, I'm be curious to speak to readers who have, who are bilingual or, or Spanish as a primary language to see how they, their experience will probably be similar, but it will be a different interpretation of that painting. So finally, what are both of you working on? Natasha, you've already hinted at it from your location right now, but what are you both working on that you're excited about? Me? Well, I'm, I'm, after my work uh, with Gabriel, I have decided to understand that I, I live in this American tradition of literature. So I have uh, written, you know, after a process, it has been 
um, I, I'm reading reflections about translation, which is like you you build your own theory. And also I have started to do some self-translation and understanding what you win and what you lose. And, and yeah, research in the university. Right. Yeah, you know, um, I, I'm teaching currently uh, poetry and, and composition here at the University of Arizona. And I'm trying, uh, this is my first book. And I'm trying to figure that out. <laughs> That's taking up all of my time is like this. I mean, it's coming out August 15th of 2023. Um, there's, uh, you know, events to plan. That's taking up a lot of my time. But I am trying to work on uh, some new poems about J.J. Uh, Arms. If you don't know, I, I won't explain right now who J.J. Arms is, but you'll have to look at it. He's a private yeah. detective from El Paso. <laughs> um, oh, wow. And uh, my... Um, my father grew up in like the shadow of his huge mansion in El Paso. Uh, it's a very poor neighborhood, but there's this giant mansion of JJ Arms there. Uh, and continuing to write about uh, about the border. I'm not sure what my next project will be, but I'm trying to keep that wheel spinning. So I'm trying to stay stay creative and stay sharp. Awesome. Well, it was such a thrill to speak with both of you and to hear both of your voices sharing the, the wonderful poetry from the Boulder Simulator. So thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Viola Swings Poetry Podcast today. Thank you for having us, James. Thank you so much. Thank you, James. The Viola Swings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Instagram, threads, and YouTube at Viola Swings. Hit subscribe to be notified of every episode of Davila Swing's Poetry Podcast and spread the word with your poetry community.